Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I we're here to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get broadband everywhere it needs to be. I'm very happy to be broadcasting this day from the um, Oregon Connection Telecommunications Conference, which is where um, statewide attendees uh, share ideas and experiences and um, knowledge of, of telecommunication part in, in whole, and obviously with a fair of um, a bit of uh, focus on broadband. Uh, my guest today is uh, Joseph uh, Fresnel, who is the general manager and CEO of Eastern Oregon Telecom, and he is going to talk about you know the state of broadband, what's developing, what's new and exciting and stuff within the um, uh, Oregon area. So, Joe, thank you very much for being there today. Well, Craig, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, you and I got to spend a little time together at this conference two years ago, and that is true. And uh, and here we are again, and now we're we're on the the radio uh, together. So this will be fun. Good, good, good. Um, it's it's interesting. I've been going to a couple of state organization uh, conferences like this, and I've been as you mentioned, yes, I've been here before, and I'm very pleased at the uh, just the level of activity activity and stuff that goes on here. So I guess we'll start with, you know, um, the uh, Oregon Broadband Advisory Council, which you are the head of. Um, What is that uh, all about and what are some of the the missions and accomplishments that you guys have been up to? So uh, the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council is a legislatively created advisory group that uh, is specifically tasked with advising uh, the legislature and the governor's office on broadband. Now, ah, okay. the, the law that creates us actually specifies areas of focus. Oh, really? Okay. And, yeah, and so um, represented on the council are Oregon cities, counties, telecommunication service providers, okay. tribes, uh, educators, economic development organizations, public safety, healthcare providers and uh, e-government experts. We also have representation from the Public Utility Commission, the State House of Representatives, and the State Senate. So it is it is a fascinating group with a very diverse membership. Okay. And and I you know, I met actually a lot of those members between last time I was here and today and um it was very interesting to see the uh the breadth um and I assume this reflects the depth of the commitment by the legislature, by the political bodies, to um, advance broadband within the the state. Yeah, there's always a question when uh, a legislative advisory council is created, is it going to be effective? Is Mm -hmm. it just going to be another uh, drain of resources, or is it really going to produce value? And uh, and I think the best best measure uh, of our success in producing value is the law that the original law that created the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council uh, was due to sunset at the end of this year. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And uh, and so then obviously the legislature in their last session had to ask the question, you know, do we perceive value in uh, in the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council? And mm-hmm. the answer was a unanimous which you think about partisan politics and right, how right. rare it is to hear of anything unanimous 
passing a legislature at any level, uh, the answer was a unanimous yes, we want the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council to continue its work. It's valuable, it's critical to the, the health of our of our state and the future of uh, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Now, I have um, interviewed quite a number of folks. Um, in the last uh, few months, I've been bringing up the question, is broadband a non partisan issue, um, and in some states uh, like Tennessee and, and North Carolina, where the state legislator ha- legislature has banned community networks, um, in general, it seems that definitely at the local level, there is, there is bipartisan support, and, and depending on which state you're in, there could be, you know, the, this bipartisanship at the state level, but but as you look at at Oregon, has the the, the topic of block broadband is this one of those rare uh, issues that there seems to be uh, bipartisanship here? Yeah, I well, yes, I, you know, obviously there's there are components of the broadband topic or the broadband question that because you know the net neutrality mm-hmm. thing that mm-hmm. that piece of it that. That look at it certainly is a is a partisan issue, or it certainly appears to be one that is polarizing. the The question of, of municipal right to be involved in broadband, you know, should municipalities be allowed to do that? You know, that that end up, can end up being a partisan uh, part of it. But I think this idea of of broadband, the value that it brings to the community, to the to the state, to the individual, certainly. Uh, this idea that we need to focus on that if our citizens, our neighbors, our coworkers are going to be successful in life and have the quality of life. It's not just about economic success, but it's also about quality of life. I think that, that both sides of, of either argument can agree on those points. So broadband itself does seem to be one of those rare topics <laughs> that transcends politics, at least conceptually, but, you know, obviously when you get down to the, the details of how that works, uh, then you you find people taking sides, which is right, right. natural. No, 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 that, that's fine. I mean, when um, two of the people from Sandy, Oregon were on the show um, about a month ago, we actually focused on the issue of building consensus among the uh, political world. Uh, both at the at the um, local level and also at the state level, and and they're they're very much in agreement with your assessment about the um, bipartisan nature of uh, broadband, and um, and so it's very good to find that as a way to move forward, and I think that we should expect a lot of things. Uh, and, and what actually what I'd like to do is talk about you know what have been a couple of the uh, main accomplishments that the uh, advisory council has been a, a part of because yesterday someone made the uh, observation that a lot of people sometimes think that that your state hasn't really been keeping up with broadband when in reality. There have been a, a number of in, initiatives that have proven to be quite the opposite. 
so I and you and know for you the the goo the the, the goo here yeah talking. so I I well and I certainly am not the guru of, of telecommunications <laughs> but uh, that's not a title I've earned yet but I you know I think I think first of all let let me set the stage so I was I was at uh, the Nehruk annual conference which is the it's the association of public utility commissioners for the U.S. Uh, last November mm-hmm. and and I was on a panel talking about broadband connectivity to every citizen. So that was part of the the discussion. And on the panel was a a representative from the state of Connecticut. Mm, And, 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 you know, I I am thrilled to say that the state of Connecticut has committed to getting fiber built to every address in the state. Right. And I think that that is a, an admirable, uh, Goal, and I think it's it's going to be a remarkable accomplishment when they get that done. But this fellow ended up his discussion by saying, "If we can do it, by God, anybody can do it." <laughs> and so, for for those of you who have traveled west of the Mississippi, you have to be aware that the challenges of distance and terrain are significant in the western half of the United States. Yes, it is. And so I, I had to gently remind uh, my fellow speaker on this panel that Oregon has counties that are bigger than the state of Connecticut <laughs> and uh, and have population densities that are federally meet the federal definition of frontier, which you never even, you never even, you hear rural and rural remote. Well, we have counties that that meet the definition of frontier because the population is so uh, so sparse, mm-hmm. and uh, you know one to one and a half people per square mile, and wow. and you start. Then let me lay the groundwork for the terrain. So Oregon is a big state, and it's important to understand this. So when we start talking about the accomplishments of the state of Oregon and the rank of Oregon with broadband. Uh, deployment and adoption, when you put all that in perspective, Oregon has done a remarkable job. So Oregon is this giant state on the west coast, just south of the state of Washington, and it is divided. Uh, there is a there is the beautiful coastline, and then there is a coastal range of mountains. So literally the mountains don't go quite to the coast, but they're right on the edge of the mm-hmm. coast, and they separate that coastal region. And then there's the River Valley, which is where Interstate 5 goes from north to south along the, the west coast. And it's the most fertile land, I think, in North America. And then there is, almost right down the center of the state, there is the Cascade, the Cascade Range of mountains. And then the eastern half of the state, which is desert. It's, uh, there are blue mountains out there, but there's, you know, there's smaller mountain ranges. But great distances, very agriculturally based. Uh, not very dense population. And so you compare that with, and I, I always joke because I, my wife is from Georgia and we lived near a place called Pine Mountain. We, you actually drive over Pine Mountain. Pine Mountain's like, I don't know, 1,200 feet high. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and so I've always laughed that the things back east that we talk about being mountains, <laughs> if you can drive to the top of it, it's probably not really a mountain. Yeah. Okay. Now, when we talk about mountain ranges, we're talking about Mount Hood. Right, right. Uh, you know, Rainier up in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, Crater Lake, you know, 14,000 feet high mountains, 10,000 feet uh, high mountains. And so these are substantial mountain ranges. And 
uh, and so the challenges are, are pretty great. Now, having said that, here are some of the things that Oregon has done and the Broadband Advisory Council has been involved in. So uh, years ago, there was a vision that started. It was a grassroots vision to build a, uh, a medical uh, network. So uh, it ended up being the Oregon Health Network. Okay. And, and so at about the time that we started this vision of building this, this great fiber network to anchor institutions that are medically based, so clinics and hospitals uh, all across the state, not just in the densely populated areas of the state. Um, with fiber, we about the same time that that happened, the FCC actually had some rural medical health care money that was made available uh, through USAC. And so, oh, right. so we actually took that, and there were a lot of experiments across the United States. Mm -hmm. Oregon is the only one that is looked at as a success. We built this wonderful and it was done with with grassroots efforts. So it wasn't some big corporation coming in and building this network. It was small providers and large communities all figuring out how to pull this together and build this wonderful network. That pushed fiber deeper into the rural parts of the state than we had seen before. We also, the Oregon Broadband Advisory, and the, the Broadband Advisory Council was active in, in, in pushing and advocating for this rural health care expansion. And mm -hmm. so we had a part in that. Uh, the state of Oregon also, through the Oregon Broadband Advisory Council and uh, the uh, uh, Business Oregon Office, got a grant to develop economic development planning for uh, communities and areas. Mm -hmm. And we actually facilitated strategic broadband planning for eight communities throughout Oregon. And one of the results that came from that was now a template that is available for any community, not just in Oregon, but anywhere in the United States. You can take this template and this process, and you don't have to even have a facilitator. You just need a broadband champion for your area mm -hmm. to convene the strategic planning session mm -hmm. and come up with a very, very actionable and robust strategic plan for your community uh, for uh, bringing broadband in and then applying broadband uh, in targeted ways to impact your, your community or your area in a, in a positive way. Uh, we're involved with uh, the state functions of FirstNet, uh, the, the national public safety network that is being built, uh, and how do we do that at the state level and make sure that that's done well and it's well thought out, and we actually have several Oregonians who are active at the federal level in that mm -hmm. uh, uh, endeavor, and so we've been successful there. And then one of the one of the interesting ones that uh, that I think most states that have uh, large rural areas will appreciate is we recognized, and the the impetus for this was. Um, about three years ago, we adopted as a state the Smarter Balanced Assessment. And, and it's not the assessment that was the issue. It was this. It was the key that, that kicked the whole thing off. Uh, and this assessment is a high school assessment for uh, students that became a requirement for graduation. Now, why this was an issue for the Broadband Advisory Council is this particular assessment is only available online. Okay. So there is no manual, you know, push the little button or, or fill in the radial circle, you know, right. to answer the question. And it's an interactive test. The test adapts 
and changes based on who is and who the person is taking the test. Right. And uh, and so as as that became kind of the benchmark. Okay, if it doesn't matter if you've got straight A's and perfect attendance all the way through high school. If you don't pass this online assessment, you don't graduate. And that stake was set in the sand. Wow. And so we looked at that and we ought, we asked what we would think would be the obvious question. Well, do we know that all of the schools in Oregon can administer the test? Right. Have connectivity that will allow them to adequately, with adequate broadband, adequate training, adequate resources, internal networks, to uh, to administer the, the test? Or are we going to uh, turn up at this particular date and find that 20% of our students don't graduate, not because they're not qualified to graduate from high school, but because we failed as a state to make sure that they have the tools necessary to take the assessment. Right. And so through a lot of discussion and education and, and facilitating an, a broadband and education summit at the state level, we were able to get enough attention from the legislature and the Department of Education to actually go out and look for uh, a partner to do a survey. And we just got last month the survey results from this initial survey on connectivity of schools in Oregon. And lo and behold, there are uh, 156 schools that that are not connected with fiber. And 76% of the school, only 76% of the schools in Oregon actually meet the minimum standards uh, for broadband connectivity that have been defined federally. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and if, then if you look at it for the 2018 requirements, uh, 80% of those, 80% of the schools, I think it's, the number is actually 82% of the schools in Oregon, currently don't meet the standard for 2018. Now, 2018 is just around the corner. And if we say we've got a train wreck today because we've got hun uh, you know, literally over 100, uh, approaching 200 schools that are not even connected with fiber, which then gives you the bandwidth to scale to be able to administer this test in a timely fashion. But by 2018, more than 80% of our schools are, are going to be inadequately connected. And this doesn't even answer the question about internal networks or teacher education or user devices to be able to actually access the bandwidth. This is just the bandwidth question. Um, it it uh, has allowed us to bring, to shed lights, very, very bright light on the issue of broadband connectivity and education here in the state. And hmm. uh, as a result, we're able to begin the planning process to meet that demand and that need in the future. All of that took place because I think the Broadband Advisory Council is that one central organization that is the gatekeeper for educating, being aware, uh, researching broadband in the state, and then being the, the voice of broadband for mm -hmm. all of these different areas of concern. Okay. So that was a long answer, wasn't it? Well, that, that, that <laughs> was. That was. But I was looking. It was informative. But it does, though, bring up the question. So, if you have, if you're fi finding these inadequacies yes. across the board, how more dramatic is it when you start to look at it from a urban, uh, rural uh, perspective? Because that divide between urban and rural. Uh, doesn't get some, well, I guess it's getting more and more uh, press attention now, but um, 
is that very real that this urban rural divide and what are you trying to do or what does the state plan to do to try to combat that so so I, there are two issues and i and the bigger the bigger issue is the digital divide so which is not urban rural specific but that's right. the big and i'm going to come back to the rural urban divide uh but there is a digital divide and uh and and that is very real and that digital divide often falls along the lines of socioeconomic uh lines mm-hmm. so it's not mm-hmm. it's not necessarily location specific but it's more the haves and the have nots right and uh and that that is an issue even in Portland which is our large population center in Oregon you know the majority of the population in the entire state is in the Portland metro area mm-hmm. and uh and so there is a digital divide there are schools that are very well connected that have very robust internal networks and have all of the training and all of the devices needed to take full uh, use of, make full use of the internet and all that, that that can bring to education. There are other schools that may have connectivity to the school, but then don't have the internal networks or don't have the focus on educating and equipping the, the instructors and the educators to be able to to leverage that adequately in the school. And even if they do, often they don't have the devices that they need. They sh- you know they've got computer carts where they have to move c- computers and and around the school because they don't have enough to actually use in the classroom right. uh, all the time. And so the the digital divide is one that I think there has been. There has been a lot of work over the years, but uh, one of the things you and I talked about before this meeting, and maybe we can get back to it toward the the end of this show, is uh, is Google Fiber, and is that a good model or a bad model? Mm-hmm. And in the area of the digital divide, I, I think that there there are certainly some significant challenges with the Google model and some great risks there. So I think that that's probably a bigger discussion than. The one the, to answer the question that you mm-hmm. just asked me in the rural urban uh, divide, and there is absolutely a very real rural uh, rural urban divide right. in Oregon. A lot of that has to do with the distance and the terrain. I mean, right. you think about building fiber uh, over mountains or along a coastline that is that is actually isolated because of a mountain range. Uh, the dealing with half of the state is very wooded. Right. Lots of trees, and she's got challenges with wireless opportunities. So even if you're looking at microwave backhauls, that's a, that often doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the eastern half of the state, where it is just wide open, big cattle country, you know, big agriculture country, lots of wide open spaces, uh, but great distances, and not a lot of customers. So you know, the economic model is very challenging. Get to get. There are some things that have happened, and it's interesting because often we look to the government for answers, but the market generally fixes itself. Right. And that's just, you know, my all of the years of experience that I, I have, I, I have seen that if we just stay out of the way, the market often will just fix the problem. If, if we're intelligent enough to kind of paths that make sense. So mm-hmm. a couple of things that have helped with the rural-urban divide in Oregon. One, the the Oregon Health Network, mm-hmm. pushed 
fiber to anchor institutions where fiber didn't exist before. And that creates great opportunity because the distance then becomes less of a challenge because the, the backhaul problem, getting back to the internet, getting back to the backbone, uh, the backbone is that, that question has been answered uh, in a lot of these communities. But that doesn't, getting fiber to those anchor institution medical facilities doesn't answer all of the community research because there are communities out there that don't have clinics or hospitals. There's a uh, probably about an hour drive from our office is a little community called Helix, Oregon. Helix, Oregon is is an agriculture community, but it's you know it's a couple of hundred people. That's really that's it. Wow. And it's not on the way to anything. So uh, and so there's there is a a bar slash cafe. There's a church. There's a city hall and a school. You know in Helix. Mm-hmm. But there's no. There's no clinic. There's no hospital. There's no reason to push that fiber that direction. So for communities like that, this next thing that just happened that uh, the market just helped us was going from 3G to 4G. 3G wireless cellular could be fed with T1s, old copper facilities. And so all these towers that are out there were just copper fed. Well, when we made the leap from 3G to 4G, LTE, suddenly that copper, those bonded T1s were no longer adequate to feed those towers. Now you think about right, it, exactly. where, do you, where do you see cell towers? Out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. you see cell towers, yeah. right? Yeah. So suddenly there's this market demand to build fiber to the cell towers to be able to support the 4G demand and platform that is being rolled out nationwide. That took and filled in a lot of the gaps mm. In, in the footprint, the Oregon footprint, uh, where now you've got fiber where you would have never, there would have been, there would not have been a business case to build fiber before. But because the market said, we want 4G wireless, suddenly there's fiber being built where there was no fiber before, which has given us greater opportunity to get fiber to a lot of these schools where you wouldn't have necessarily gotten it before. Mm-hmm. So is there still work to do? Absolutely. But we have come so far, and I'm going to loop back to how well Oregon is doing, in spite of all those challenges. That you know, that it's a very large state, you know, two very large mountain ranges, all these distance issues. We still rank eighth in the United States for broadband deployment and adoption. Mm-hmm. That is that is an astound. If it were only so easy as building <laughs> fiber in Connecticut, you know, we would be number one because right. we're, we're that focused on broadband, and in spite of these challenges, our state has done very well and continues to rank very highly uh, among the 50 states. Mm -hmm. So I have a question, um, and it probably has not been asked a whole lot in the middle of the broadband discussion, which is um, oftentimes when there are articles about Lifeline and uh, providing uh, subsidies to help poor people, low-income folks, be able to get broadband. Right? There are, as as surely as the sun rises in the east, there are people. There are going to be comments along the lines of, "Why are we giving up our hard-earned tax dollars to support poor people?" And um, 
and then, you know, so so the question I have, besides the fact that I find that very uh, unfair, is what, what what do we do about the attitude to? Because there's two two attitudes. One is, is about the poor people, and the one is about government. Where that that you get you can you can divide a, a room on on those two issues. Oh, absolutely. And but how, but we but but I feel like we have to address them because if you can't resolve that, then the people who are you're looking on looking to to support the initiatives and so forth, whether they are political people or just neighborhood people, you have to somehow answer those two questions. I'll deal with the government part later. Yeah. But but the <laughs> but the thing about poor people seems to be like the 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 big gorilla in the room. You know, and it, it it's 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 astounding to me because folks say we don't want to enable them to live that lifestyle. Now, what rational person wants to live in poverty? Okay, so if you have a choice of living in poverty or not living in poverty, what are you going to choose, Craig? Well, definitely I'm going to choose to not to live in not poverty. Exactly, right. That's a no-brainer. So, so the fear is that we're going to take tax dollars and make it so com- and I'm and I'm going to I'm going to refute this. Right, right, so right. don't don't think I'm I won't I'm, yell. I'm a proponent I'm, I'm, of this. I'm, 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 you got to put the cave <laughs> out. Yeah, there. You got to put the out so, there. So people are fearful that we're we're utilizing tax dollars, our money, who are working hard, are paying money. And we're utilize those tax dollars to make it so comfortable for those who are in poverty that they'll choose to stay in poverty. Right. Now, the reality is what we just established, the rational person is not going to choose to stay in poverty if they feel that they have a viable option. So then the question becomes, how do we give people who are in poverty options to get out of poverty? And that's been one of the big questions that we've been trying to answer. And there have been a lot of argument about that. But one thing that we know for sure, if you have broadband access at home, we know this statistically, your children are significantly more likely to go to college. Right. So so broadband at home is not an enabler of of laziness. It is not an enabler of a... A, uh, a lifestyle that is non-productive, broadband is an enabler of opportunity. And so what do you do about this attitude about people who are in poverty? Well, you have to educate folks. Look, what is your, and if people start pushing back, you have to ask the question, so what is your desired end state? What, mm-hmm. what do you want to happen with poor people? Well, I want them to be productive. And and even someone who is rapidly against welfare and rapidly against entitlements, it, they're going to, I guarantee you, if you can get them to detach from that conversation, to ask them, honestly, what is your desired end state? My desired end state is those people who are, who are drawing, who are, who are pulling all of the resources out of our economy and not producing anything in return. I wish they would just, I wish they would be productive. So then you get the, okay, we want poor people to be, be productive, not just consumers, but actually producers. How do we do that? 
Then you start making, because there's enough statistical data out there that is not partisan, it's not opinion, it's real statistics that shows if we get these people access to the internet and then we train them on what they can do with it, that is one of the cleanest, most clear paths to give them hope and the tools that they need to come out of poverty. I, that's why I think broadband is this nonpartisan deal. Right. Because how do you argue with the facts? Mm-hmm. Not, you know, if you get back and you start talking about entitlements, that's where it all falls apart. But if you talk about equipping people to change their lives, broadband, they can be healthier. They can have a better education. They can actually get involved with government much easier. Uh, they can communicate across distance. Uh, you. You start talking about the benefits of broadband in the home, not just at school or at a library, mm-hmm. but in the home. The statistical data will tell you we should make sure that we give people opportunity to be connected. Right. It's not enough to be connected, though. You have to take that next step and educate them what can you do with it. Right. Not just about playing games right. and watching Netflix or, or being on Facebook. I mean, that's the trap, uh, is that we give people the tools, but we don't teach them how to use the hammer. I want to shift directions here for a second. I want to talk about the models, uh, the broadband okay. models that are out there. And you have some good, you know, some uh, pretty strong opinions about what stuff does well. Um, some makes it makes more sense in rural than urban and so forth. But what's what's your take on the issue of model, uh, broadband business models? So I'm I'm one of the very few people in the United States who has who has both managed a municipal broadband company mm-hmm. and uh, and then worked in the private sector. So I, I've got experience on both the public side and the the private side. And um, and so uh, you know I, I probably shouldn't do this because then readers our listeners won't necessarily listen to the whole thing. But uh, uh, you know, I, I will tell you that I think it really just depends which model is best. I, I think there are pretty strong pros and cons uh, with with different models, and uh, sometimes blending of models really makes sense for a particular community. Um, I I I believe strongly in the right of citizens to provide their own broadband if the incumbents are either unwilling or unable to. And so I you know I I with all of this fighting that's been going on, on about whether or not municipalities should have the right to provide their own broadband. I you know I think that that municipalities are really representative governments. So if you take away a municipality's right to provide broadband, you're effectively saying citizens can't do it themselves through their own elected representative government. So I think that that you know that's that's probably um, the only reason you would ever do that to preclude that is if um, if you just had private sector folks doing really good lobbying at the legislative uh, level to to prevent that, uh, and so they don't have competition. That said, uh, the municipal model is a tough model because. It, so working in the private sector today, my board of directors, the folks that I report to, they're all professionals. So they're business people. They understand competitive markets. They understand technology. They understand telecommunications. And so when I have uh, 
discussions with my board, it's it, I'm talking with peers, professional peers. And when I get direction from my board, it's coming from people who understand the business. Now, when you're a municipal broadband, your board of directors is generally the city council. And the city council is made up of elected officials. Very rarely do those elected officials have telecommunications experience. Only sometimes do those elected officials have experience uh, in competitive business. And so uh, the, the board... The board relations are much more difficult and much more complex when you're in a municipal broadband um, model. And and then uh, ultimately the obvious risk is that it, it becomes a, a political thing. So instead of focusing on what the municipal broadband system was created for, it becomes a political tool or a political toy. And then lastly, uh, the financial modeling for a municipal broadband is, is different because, uh, you know, and I'll speak from a, an Oregon perspective, um, the broadband enterprise is part of the larger city budget. And often that larger city budget subset relationship creates uh, a lack of clarity uh, and so it it uh, it becomes harder to differentiate between the success of the enterprise and the rest of the city's budget. And so, you know, I think that there are some risks that that you can manage, but it requires a great deal of time and effort. the The subsidized model, which is the subsidized incumbent telephone company. This is the model where uh, the Universal Service Fund provides you know, subsidies based on where you are, especially in rural markets. Now, in urban markets, you don't get a lot of subsidies, if any, uh, because the densities support the build. But in, in rural markets, you've got the subsidized model. That's a pretty good model, um, and uh, I think that that model still is, is valid for rural remote markets. There's a, a market here in Herms or in Oregon that's uh, it's Helix Telephone. And Helix is a town of about 200 people. It is not on the way to anything, and yet it's a very agriculturally based uh, market, large, large agriculture. And so there's a great economic benefit to having Helix uh, connected to the rest of the world uh, agriculturally. And, uh, and, but there's no business model that would ever support taking broadband to Helix unless there, were, there was some form of a subsidy through either the Universal Service Fund or Connect America Fund or something similar to that. So that, that model is pretty good. And then, actually, my favorite model uh, is the, well, there are two models that I like that are, are, I think, really beneficial. One is a cooperative model. And uh, even though Eastern Oregon Telecom, the company that I work with, is a, a CLEC, we're a competitive local exchange carrier and a rural unsubsidized telco, uh, we actually got started by an electric utility, and uh, and they they were the visionaries that started Eastern Oregon Telecom, and they rallied support from another uh, electric co-op and uh, and and a couple of rural telcos, and and started Eastern Oregon Telecom about 16 years ago. And the reason I like the cooperative model is uh, either from a cooperative telco standpoint or a cooperative. Uh, electric utility standpoint is the cooperative 
exists for the benefit of its members. And so even though I am a for-profit company and I have to be profitable, um, I also have this great benefit of, of having this culture that says, you really exist for the benefit of the communities that you serve. And, and so the decision-making is, is a lot healthier, I think, long-term than a company that is just purely profit-driven. Again, I have to be profitable, but, uh, but I, you know, I, can, I can make decisions based on what's best for the company, which sometimes includes a slightly longer ROI on an investment than you would expect if you were just purely profit-driven. And then the other model that I really like is a public-private partnership. So this, you, you benefit from uh, the community, the government, saying we want to, we want to, to facilitate the uh, delivery of advanced telecommunications on our market. And sometimes that's through uh, a bond measure to help fund the initial build and then, uh, and then have a private sector company uh, actually run the municipal broadband. Or uh, other times it, it, it may just be through uh, uh, the, the municipality actually streamlining the permitting process for building and, and making uh, franchising a little bit easier so that uh, the private partner uh, can come in and actually move forward at a quicker rate. And so the public-private partnership allows for this great marriage of the, the government that represents the people and a private sector company that is then able to come in and operate uh, efficiently without the political interference that would, you would have if you were a pure municipal model. So does that answer your question, Craig? No, that makes <laughs> sense. And in fact, I would, uh, at the risk of getting some people maybe a little agitated, um, oh, no, you never do that. I would not, no, not, not, not this <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> but um, I understand the political aspect of broadband such that um, that I feel that you always have to have safeguards built into the program to minimize the outsized influence of politics. And what I mean by that yeah. is um, in, in Philadelphia, when they were trying to do a municipal network a decade ago, and one of the, their plans was they were going to have a, a board that was going to be, uh, um, be put in place in, uh, in incrementally. So it would be two, you know, one year is a couple – the next year is a couple, you know, and they stagger. Right. They, and then that would right. So they don't all rotate off the board at the same time. Right, and you sort of, then you sort of um, deflect some of the political issues. Um, yeah. I think that in a small, in a large city, your your um, chances of minimizing the politics is is much harder than it is local. Like I think Sandy has a good um uh a pro approach where the city council and the, the mayor and the political apparatus of sandy is full full on in encouraging the network and managing certain uh, business practices and so forth um longmont uh in Colorado has again uh in how they uh, make everybody who is running for office at whatever level and in the local aspect and get 
their assurance that they will, you know, support the network and subsequently try to minimize the opportunity of becoming a political football because of all the parties and all the, uh, you know, the the outlying people and all those folks. Um, if they're all politically in uh, favor of the network, you minimize some of that issue there. I think that at this point, you know, uh, if uh, having certain uh, guidelines in the, in the political structure um, is helpful, I think that when you're do- dealing with a um, public utility, you are you tend to move out away from some of that uh, political influence. And if you do what some people uh, have done, where they hire a entity to run, manage, market the whole thing, so it's basically the the public is safeguarded because they have a certain amount of of uh, um, influence, but but the actual day to day operation is done uh, by a private sector entity that knows what they're doing. And I think that you know the and and I I agree with all of that, but you know you and I have have spoken in the past about how I'm, how broadband is while it is it it is similar to a utility in that we're now of in that era where in order to be successful in life you really need to have broadband at home and you know the earlier discussion about how do we lift the poor out of poverty uh and and getting them access where not just access but access and training on what the bro- what broadband and connectivity can do for them in in the job search and education and all those things um broadband is similar to water and electricity in that everyone really does need it now i mean face it in many cases you can't even apply for a job unless you do it online now there are no paper applications and uh but it's different than a utility in that uh electricity for example uh you know we're one of my parent companies, or two of them, are actually electric utilities. And so I've had a lot of experience listening to how they do business and the technology that they're leveraging today, the you know electrical infrastructure, not the monitoring software that they're using, the SCADA systems and that kind of thing, but the actual infrastructure is basically built the same way it was built 50, 75 years ago. You know, transformers and substations and all of that stuff, power generation and how you get it from point A to point B, the technology to to actually do that hasn't changed much at all. Getting water from point A to point B, certainly we have better uh, pipe structures. You know, we're using, you know, plastic and polymers instead of, in some cases, you know, clay and iron from, you know, 100 years ago pottery even, um, you know, clay type, fired clay pipes. Uh, but the technology really is the same. Water is the same. And so you you don't have the advancements and the innovation and the changing nature of the business that you do with broadband and technology in, in those utility models. And so if you treat broadband like a utility and it becomes a monopoly, and this is the risk with a, a municipal broadband system, is that you're leveraging public resources, which ends up being a, a strategic advantage for the muni. 
mm-hmm. over a private sector folk, uh, company that doesn't have those you know, built-in advantages, you run the risk of eliminating competition in your market. And I will tell you, if you go and honestly, and again, set aside all the partisan politics, if you honestly go and look at markets where it, there is a monopoly, there is no competition for Internet, prices are higher, speeds are slower, innovation is much slower to get to the market. Where competition, and this is why you've heard this from the FCC, actually several FCC chairmen in a row now, you've heard this very loud voice saying competition is absolutely critical where broadband is concerned. And so with a municipal model, that's another risk is that we run into, uh, we, we create a monopolistic market environment where uh, you, you actually harm the consumer long term. And uh, and that's the that's the only thing that I really would I would caution people about uh, happily euphorically going down this path of a municipal market uh, municipal broadband system is that you you might actually damage your community long term. Now, if the community has no other choice, certainly go out and do it. Absolutely, you know, if there is no one who's going to do it, there's no incumbent, there's no competitive carrier who wants to come in and serve your market, then absolutely that model could work. But uh, I, I think that I think you ought to explore other options first. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? No, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I, I but I wonder, um, does it make sense to champion the municipal or the public utility approach? as a way to introduce competition because the same way you're talking about um, if a municipality could be the only, you know, playing a game in town, so could a private sector company. And so at that point, does it make sense to have a municipal network um, come in as an essence to challenge the, uh, uh, the, the 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 monopoly at that point. I I so here in Hermiston in Eastern Oregon, um, and and it, a similar circumstance presented itself 15 years ago, where the incumbent, which was a monopoly at that time, telephone company, um, was not advancing. They weren't bringing the advanced telephone service, nor were they bringing dial-up internet access. To the market, and so the citizens said, "You know, we want to do that." And and actually, through the electric cooperative, and see, this may be a different approach to that. Instead of the municipality doing it, the electric cooperative, if one exists, actually represented the citizens and went to the incumbent and says, "Look, the, our members, the members of the electric cooperative, want." Uh, Caller ID, that was a big deal 15 years ago. So, you know, now we're, it's just kind of the way we do business. But call waiting, caller ID, and we really would like to get some kind of dial-up Internet access. And uh, the income, and they said, we'll even help. We'll partner with you to bring those advanced services to this area. And the incumbent said, well, you're on our list for capital construction and, and you know, upgrades for all of our infrastructure, but you're 10 years out. That market is 10 years out. 
And so at that point, that's when the electric cooperative, and the city was involved as well, but instead of going down the municipal path, they went down this path of the electric cooperative uh, jump-starting this competitive carrier to come in and provide competitive telecommunications in the market. That's how Eastern Oregon Telecom came to be. So, you know, it's the same, it's the same approach, but the mechanism was different. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we've got about five minutes, and I want to I want to touch on this issue of uh, Google because again, you have some <laughs> uh, opinions on this, and and they're interesting opinions. And so I want to I want to I want to explore this a little bit. So uh, in in less than five minutes. <laughs> but can yeah, you, if I can. <laughs> yeah, can you, can you, can you lay it out what you think is the all best. right? So in less than five minutes, Craig, I'll try and get this out. So you know. Um, Telecommunications carriers use the public right-of-way, which is a public asset that is owned by the, the people who live in the municipality or the county, wherever you know that public uh, right-of-way resides. And for my entire life, if a, pub, a private entity wanted to use the public right-of-way for their own benefit, for their own profit, the the they would have to sign a franchise. And that franchise always had at its heart this social contract that said, if you're going to use this public resource, then you have to commit to build infrastructure to 90% or better of the the households in our municipality uh, in a certain period of time, generally you know 10 years. And so saying you can't get benefit from the public property that you're going to use without uh, committing to serve the, mo the majority of the public. And that was designed, this social contract, to reduce cherry-picking by a private company, where you come in and you only serve the people who are going to really make you a ton of money and you ignore the rest of the community. So that has been in place since the beginning of the Internet as a product to the consumer. And so since the beginning, we have been narrowing the digital divide through this idea of a social contract and the mechanism being franchising that enforces that. The Google model is the first private sector company model that says, we're not going to sign a franchise unless you remove that as a requirement. We won't even come to your community unless you tell us that we can just build where we want to and we'll build where there's demand. And so if you look at Kansas City, for example, um, Google actually increased, and for the first time in, in the history of the Internet, we're seeing in communities where Google Fiber has been installed, we're seeing the digital divide actually widen instead of shrink. And that's because Google has given permission now to go in and only build where there's demand. Well, now, if you look at their model, you know, you got a $300 install fee uh, if you want this this thing, or but you have to sign up in advance and there's a financial commitment. Uh, if you want it for free, that only works if your fiberhood uh, has agreed uh, there were enough people who were willing to pay so that we build the infrastructure. And so Google has now let the genie out of the bottle, so to speak, with their approach to building municipalities. And, and we've abandoned that social contract with the citizens of our municipalities. And so it's not just applied now to Google. You can't say Google can only 
Google only can build where they want to, and everybody else has to be abide by the social contract that we've had in place forever. Oh, no. Now that we've got this Google model that's out there, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? And so I think the Google model is actually a violation of our trust uh, that we've created with the citizens of the United States that says we're going we're gonna to treat each other equally. And, uh, and Google throws that out the window. So I think the Google model is a horrible model. Uh, they've done great good by bringing you know, uh, a lot of attention to, to fiber to the home. They've lowered the cost of fiber to the home builds because now there's more people doing it. But ultimately, I think socially it's going to end up damaging us as a nation. Mm-hmm. I... I think that this brings to an interesting point, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure there will people will, will respond to this, uh, you know, over the next couple of days and stuff. But I definitely see the logic behind your 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 stance, and uh, I think that uh, it's a it's definitely a, a dilemma. I think, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out in the next two years or so. So I guess we'll just have to see um, how 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 it doesn't play out, and we'll just go from there. Um, well, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't I don't know how I don't know how that plays out any other way than I see it playing it out, and that's uh, that's uh, at the detriment of those who who can't afford uh, fiber to the home up front. So, well, yep. I uh, I th- I think that you know that that's a well thought out plan of uh, position, and uh, I think we probably should. Deal with this again, another another say. Um, you just call on me anytime, Craig. It's always a pleasure. No worries. It's been a, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, it was great being at the uh, conference uh, and and just uh, meeting what's going, uh, meeting people and talking about what's going on in Oregon. So I wish you guys you know much continued success, and we'll we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Oh, uh, all righty. And to our audience, thank you very much for uh, attending today. And we'll be back on the air soon with another really interesting topic. Take care. Have a good day.